With that magnificent paragraph, stately and monumental, Mozart sets out on one of the most remarkable musical journeys that even he ever undertook. This symphony, number 41 in C, was to be his last, and it was nicknamed the Jupiter. It was completed, along with two other magnificent symphonies, in a fantastic burst of concentrated creativity of just two months in 1788. The Jupiter exemplifies the range of Mozart's compositional mastery like no other of his purely orchestral works. It synthesizes a great number of apparently irreconcilable elements, and Mozart does this with such refinement that we barely notice what he's done. It all sounds so miraculously unified. In any great work, the opening gambits will sow seeds. Musical processes will be exposed which will grow and put out shoots throughout the work. And so things happen in that opening paragraph that'll have far-reaching consequences. I called it stately and monumental, and the words were carefully chosen. By stately I mean the detached, ceremonial air of the music, the sense of collective rather than individual emotion. And the word monumental indicates the static nature of the music. It doesn't sound like the beginning of a dramatic journey. The Jupiter Symphony's great columns of sound seem rooted to the spot, suggesting an imposing public building. Mozart takes unusual steps to achieve this effect, and it's going to have very important repercussions. The symphony's opening statement gives us two ideas which will be used in different ways throughout the movement. The first one is itself divided in two, a loud flourish followed by a pleading answer. The next idea in this group of themes is less flexibly used. It has a monolithic character and will appear with few changes at important points throughout the movement, like great columns in this movement's monumental architecture. It also relentlessly emphasises the home key of C major, preventing for the time being any sense of forward motion. It does this by confining itself to just three primal chords. At first hearing they seem dangerously repetitive, but Mozart has a grand strategy in mind, and is launching a huge span which embraces all four movements. He lays these chords out in a wonderfully sonorous way. The strings outline the harmony with big chords on first violins, cellos and basses. Superimposed over those string chords is the full wind band, together with trumpets and drums. They articulate the harmony in Mozart's favourite march rhythm. Mozart revels in the spacing of the chords and the brilliant mix of timbres. And now, here's the majestic Tutti sonority with Mozart's continuation. He persists in driving home his point insistently, and it ends with a full pause.
that full pause feels a little surprising. You'd normally expect such a punctuating point or structural breather a little later. It would be a means of taking stock before the second group of themes appears. But here we're about to hear a counterstatement of everything we've heard so far. That second group is still some way off. That pause should be borne at the back of your mind. It won't explain itself till later. Mozart now makes radiant additions to his opening material. Back comes the opening flourish, but quietly now, with its answering phrase, the dotted figure. Over it all is an elegant countermelody on flute and oboe. It's a wonderful new sound, but subdued, as if that sudden stop has had a severe effect on the musical flow. <laughs> That dotted figure continues to develop in a determined way. It's repeated and extended in a massive tutti. Mozart again comes up with a sound of the utmost solidity and, most importantly, of stability. Although the theme is stretching and growing, the background remains rigidly immobile. The flutes, oboes, violas and double basses sustain just one note at great length. They're reinforced by the march rhythm of the horns, trumpets and timpani. To gain maximum impact from his developing dotted figure, Mozart very characteristically parallels its line lower in the orchestra. The first violins play the high line, while a long way below, the second violins, cellos and bassoons give us the other one in the sonorous tenor region. Put that developing foreground that forges ahead, together with the massive static background, and the effect is extraordinarily two-edged. Only at the end does Mozart move the harmony. He does this quite suddenly, and proceeds to confirm it most insistently, the same way he did with the home key of C major at the beginning of the movement. Two vital things are happening here. The first is that sense of enormous pillars of sound, like marble columns and great facades. But Mozart is also juxtaposing completely contrasting material, the vibrant forward movement against the solid background. The music has come to a temporary halt for the second time. Now, though, it's less of a surprise. It's time for the second group of themes. After a first section which sounded more like a static introduction than a dynamic exposition, Mozart's long-term strategy is beginning to make itself felt. This is to be a movement where static and dynamic elements will be at loggerheads. Now, with the arrival of the second group, the music at last begins to flow forward, the sense of release brings one of Mozart's most exquisitely poised melodies. 
During the course of its growth, discrete help is given by the dotted figure from the opening bars. It's as if the dotted theme can't stop itself appearing. It's irrepressibly trying to drive the music on. of high expectancy, there's another full bars pause. Mozart's overall plan is coming increasingly into focus. He doesn't want the music to flow too easily and too dynamically early on in the work. The moment that second theme appeared to be taking off, he damned the flow. In bringing things to a halt for the third time so early in the movement, Mozart is setting up great tensions. Now the music explodes dramatically, Suddenly and unexpectedly we find ourselves in C minor. There have been no hints of the dark minor keys so far, but the music quickly picks itself up and wrenches itself back into the major key. Again, Mozart is juxtaposing music of abrupt contrasts. The transition is of the utmost concision. We've reached another full pause, the fourth in the exposition. The contest between static and dynamic is becoming increasingly determined. If Mozart had started his development section at this point, he would have deprived us of breathing space. He's already used so much development in constructing his exposition. What he does is to give us another fully-fledged theme, followed at last by the exposition's closing section. Once more we hear those massive chordal columns that shore up the whole movement, define its paragraphs and halt dynamic progress. So far, Mozart has laid down a big, spacious exposition of themes. The urge to press forward dynamically has been curbed by great static blocks of sound. The time has now come to unleash at last the music's dynamic urge and begin travelling through different keys. The way Mozart initiates this process could not have been predicted, but on reflection his extraordinary gesture is perfectly judged. 
With almost childlike simplicity, he jumps into a totally unexpected key and sets off again with the new theme we've just heard. This isn't a movement of smooth transitions, rather of monumental blocks cemented together. And at this point, Mozart sets in motion one of those superb mechanisms that put us in mind of a divine clockmaker, releasing the levers on one of his cosmic timepieces. The cogs and wheels fit so perfectly that one can hardly believe the intricacy of the working. First, the upper and lower strings swap little phrases based on the end of our new theme. Then the phrases begin to overlap. <laughs> While that's going on, the wind section marks the harmony with those march rhythms we heard earlier. Then, with supreme elegance, they move into imitative phrases. The extraordinary thing about this music is the openness of the working. You can see the cogs fitting together perfectly. Even now, when the movement finally has a sense of moving forward, it still sounds tightly controlled. <laughs> might have thought at that point that we've arrived home and are about to embark on the recapitulation. But those with a strong sense of pitch will have realised we aren't yet in the right key, and in any case, Mozart's piano dynamic marking and the subdued orchestration also raised doubts. In fact, more development is needed to get round to the home key. Mozart presses into service the idea which remained unshakably monolithic throughout the exposition. He always used it to confirm the key and root the music to the ground, and it's quite unnerving to hear it in a disruptive context. Now, in the development, it's robbed of its certainty and forced to search for the home key.
recapitulation is now firmly launched, and Mozart accordingly brings back all his themes. On two occasions, though, he does the unexpected. Soon the music will need to take a different course from the exposition, so that the second group of themes can now appear in the home key. Mozart does something quite magical, a tiny detail but exquisite in its invention. The phrase first appeared like this. On its reappearance in the recapitulation, Mozart slightly straightens out the melodic line and makes a little imitation between first and second violins. But he radically reconceives the accompanying texture. The chords we heard first time round are turned into three tiny individual lines. Two of the lines are shared between solo wind instruments. Underneath that delicate tracery, stalk the violas and cellos in answering phrases. Put all that together, and you have a wonderful example of Mozart's inspired craftsmanship. Structurally, it's probably not needed. He could have retained something like the original simple chords, but Mozart's power of reinvention makes passionate claims on our attention. You can hear the delicate clicking of the clockwork mechanism, and the sudden complexity as all these different lines cut across each other. And it's another juxtaposed contrast. An intricate filigree against the monolithic blocks of sound. There's one more extremely dramatic event in the middle of the recapitulation. At this point in the exposition, the music burst out unexpectedly in the minor key, then quickly wrenched itself back on course. This time round, though, Mozart extends the interruption and truly shakes the foundation and stability of C major. You'll feel the sense of danger as the music only just manages to get back on course. The sudden contrast stays in our mind even as we head towards the triumphant end of the movement. The dramatic power unleashed here is out of all proportion to the eight bars that contain it. <laughs>
and so to the slow movement. Here Mozart offsets the majesty of the opening movement with music of Olympian calm. The strings are muted, which brings discretion to their melting melody, and the marvellously gauged woodwind lines are coolly poised. When the opening melody is repeated in the bass, the violin's wispy decorations float high above. They focus the otherworldly air of this extraordinary music. But it's all very well describing what happens in a movement. As Brahms put it in a different context, any fool can see that. We need to ask more often why something happens. Why does a certain theme belong to a certain movement? Why does a movement belong to one symphony rather than to another? Just such questions are provoked by the very next event in this movement. Who would have guessed that with hardly a break Mozart was going to plunge into this area of feeling? What a turbulent and troubled world we find ourselves in, a sudden and surprising plummet. But a number of events in the first movement also emerged without warning. Clouds abruptly covered the sun, and sections were juxtaposed without helpful transitions. This upsurge of disruptive feelings, and its key of C minor, mark this music as belonging uniquely to the Jupiter. Sudden contrasts of material and of emotion these are emerging as unique arguments within the symphony, and these arguments are being carried over across movements, creating a real sense of journey and of architecture. As if this section's restless figuration and dissonant harmony weren't enough, Mozart now disrupts the rhythm as well. He divides the music into two-beat patterns, which ride across the bars of three-time.
Mozart superimposes agitated figures on the first violins and low shudderings on the second violins and violas, and the result is one of his most poignant and unsettling visions. But characteristically, he disperses the tension almost as quickly as he summons it, with a transition of the utmost concentration. The rest of the movement is easy to follow, developing and repeating ideas we've already heard. Before we leave it, though, there's one more fascinating detail I should mention. It comes from Mozart's original manuscript full score of the symphony. Mozart had started to write down the last few bars of the movement in his fair copy when a new idea struck him. At that incredibly late stage in the composing process, he crossed out what he'd done and gave us the sublime coda we now cherish. I've transcribed his original thoughts and guessed at the second violin and viola parts, which he'd not had time to write before he changed his mind. As you'll hear, it's a characteristic but purely functional end. This is the first time this music has ever been recorded. Until now, it's unlikely anybody has heard these initial thoughts of Mozart's. Listen now to the end as he finally bequeathed it to us, and marvel at the speed and flexibility of the mind that could conceive this last-minute change of course. Mozart leads back to a spacious restatement of his main theme, coloured by those marvellously gauged woodwind lines. Fine but predictable craftsmanship had been replaced by inspiration.
an eagerness to unravel the mysteries of the grander movements in classical symphonies shouldn't lead us to overlook their minuets. One eminent scholar actually said there was no unusual feature in the Jupiter Symphony's minuet, and with that proceeded to the finale. But it's one of Mozart's most subtle symphonic dance movements. Just as in the slow movement, there are links which confirm where this minuet belongs, to this symphony and to no other. Here's a theme from the first movement. Now compare that with the main theme of this minuet. Every link in the melody is related to one in that theme. But it's not just a matter of spotting thematic ties. There's a tendency on the part of this minuet to take deep breaths and stretch its limbs. It produces soaring extensions, just like the dotted theme did in the first movement. You could say that both movements share the same kind of thematic behaviour. This is how it sounds in the minuet. There's one more thematic link which shows without any doubt that Mozart was taking an overarching view of the work's structure. You'll see what I mean if we play an important phrase from the middle of the movement. And then jump to the first four bars of the finale. And so, after all that preparation, it's only now with the finale that we can begin to appreciate the audacity of Mozart's overall concept. At last we'll find answers to those questions we've been asking throughout the work. Why, in that uniquely paced first movement, was dynamism kept in check by pauses and static paragraphs? How was Mozart going to resolve the tensions generated by the stop-go progress? and by the unsettling emotions that sometimes surfaced so unnervingly in minor key paragraphs. He does so in one of the most astonishing symphonic movements ever written, a finale of unique structure and expression. With the Jupiter, Mozart gave birth to a new kind of symphony, one in which the finale, not the first movement, carried the greatest weight. And this would be one of Mozart's greatest legacies to Beethoven, and the symphony after Beethoven. All the other movements have led up to this one, the damming up of the tension in the first, the sudden contrasts in the second, the arching, stretching lines of the minuet. Think back to that image of the first movement as being supported by huge columns of sound, pillars in the great monumental architecture of the music. It's as if Mozart has let the people flood into that huge public building. Now an immense energy and dynamism is suddenly released.
that was Mozart's way of establishing that this is, after all, a sonata structure. But the music also exhilarates us in its use of counterpoint. Sometimes up to five different and equally important lines are speaking at the same time. It's as if there's too much energy to just generate a single, surging melodic line. The music explodes upwards and downwards throughout the orchestral texture, just as much as it dries forwards. Soon he works the opening theme as if it were the beginning of a fugue. Then this first group of themes draws to a close, using a theme which always appears in imitation. Here the violins are answered by the cellos and basses. Mozart's command of wind and brass sonority enables that imitation to be supported by a glorious sequence of harmonies. It's as if the majesty of Handel had been reinvented. Here's the texture complete, a perfect marriage of counterpoint and harmony, yet another union of opposites. Finally, the section closes with another fragment of the first theme, and Mozart shows that it too will work in imitation. All of his material is revealing extraordinary possibilities of dynamism, of argument, and sheer primal energy. Listen how the lower strings come rushing in after the violins. Now, back we go to an ordinary tune and accompaniment texture for the second theme. But notice how counterpoint keeps breaking out. Fragments of the first theme join in on the woodwind. The irrepressible urge for contrapuntal brilliance can't be suppressed. The music now becomes positively incandescent as Mozart's unparalleled inventive capacity generates a volcanic energy. That second theme takes off as a four-part imitation, with the first and second violins entering at only one beat's distance, followed equally closely by cellos and basses, then violas. The energy of these brilliant arguments and dialogues launches a triumphant twitty section. Unlike in the first movement, the forward surge is unstoppable. I was loath to interrupt Mozart's triumphant progress at that point, but I couldn't resist pointing out a further piece of contrapuntal mischief. One of the themes shows that it'll work as an imitation upside down. The lower strings present the downward plunge we're familiar with, while the violins rush upwards. Then, finally, the music can draw breath. <laughs> ¶¶ 
All so far has been brilliance and sunshine, but what of the darker events in the earlier parts of the symphony? A convincingly triumphant conclusion can't afford to sidestep these unsettling issues. The next section immediately shows an awareness of the problem. It drops unexpectedly and movingly into darker regions and takes on an air of strife and discontinuity. But Mozart pulls off a miraculous trick with his transition back to the main theme. A real transition this time. He has to change keys and mood quickly, and he slips back into the home key in six bars of breathtaking ingenuity. <laughs> In a symphony where measured transitions are rare, that brilliant return home has an even greater effect. We're now in the recapitulation, and it follows a largely predictable course. But there's one startling exception: there has to be a change of route at some point in order to keep the second group of themes in the home key. But what Mozart does is beyond all imagining. In a final allusion to the work's darker moments, he invents one of his most extraordinary sequences. It's almost as if the Wagner of Tristan and Isolde is foreshadowed here, with a sequence of discords that must have astounded Mozart's contemporaries. But he then steps back into a radiant world reminiscent of Handel. The whole passage remains the most radical example of Mozart's ability to integrate disparate elements. It's a complete summation of his mastery of contrast. All the juxtaposed blocks of material in the symphony culminate in this moment. That remains is to celebrate the movements, indeed the works, crowning glory. For the coda outdoes everything that's happened so far. In a riot of contrapuntal exuberance, every theme in the movement reveals that it'll fit with every other. They enter one after another as an around. Then, when all five are present, they start to spin round while changing positions. After every four bars, the top voice moves to the bottom. And so on, till every theme has sounded in every position. The exhilaration of this music is quite overwhelming, an astounding ending to Mozart's last symphony. It epitomizes his generous and liberal spirit, the humane, even divine comedy of his vision. All the world is here, comprehended in its contrasts of light and shadow, but drawn together into something that lifts the spirits like no other music. <laughs> ¶¶